friends, guys, gals, non-binary pals, welcome to the third episode of Crime Chat. I'm currently recording in my bedroom, and I have my two cats here, and they are both the devil, so if you hear background noise, all apologies. Today we're going to be talking about a murder that took place really close to my hometown in rural northeast Pennsylvania. And if you've heard of Christy Mirak, you know it was recently in the news. Um, if you don't know, we're about to find out. <laughs> but it was recently in the news. And it's one of those murders I feel like doesn't get the spotlight. It was cold for 25 years. And it is a very, very interesting take. So let's get into it. Let's chat crime, friends. Christy Mirak was born in 1967, which would make her 25 at the time of her death. She grew up in Shimokan, Pennsylvania, again, super close to where I grew up, and the year we're talking about on this episode is around 1992. I remember checking the school delays when I was a kid, around like 96, 99, and because our school started with a W, I always saw Shimokan, Shimokan pop up one or two before ours came up, and that's really my only reference. I've driven through the town a decent amount of times. It's a very small coal mining town in 1992. I'm honestly not sure of the population, but today it's about 6,500 people, so that is quite small. Shimokan was coal mining country, and coal dust literally dyed most of the streets like muddy brown if you drove through it. By 92, coal was really like a dying breed, and the town was going among the route that my personal town took, which is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and more podunk because people are moving away from it. And Christy was one of those people. She was medium height, medium thin build. She had, at the time of her death, I'd say, like, past her collarbones, dirty blonde hair, and that classic, like, oh my god, my mom had it, big 90s wispy bang swoop. I call it the Julia Roberts. <laughs> That's what it reminds me of, at least. And she was, honestly looked like the, school, the girl next door. So growing up in Shimokan, Pennsylvania, Christy always wanted to be a school teacher. Her siblings, especially her brother, recall that when they would play as kids, they'd always play like student and teacher, and Christy would always be the teacher. And growing up, that really wasn't any different. So she was accepted to Millersville University, promptly got an education in elementary education. <laughs> that just sounds so fucked up. Either way, she loved what she did, and she applied to a couple different jobs and finally landed what she would call and tell her friends her dream role. Unfortunately, she wouldn't really get to execute many years of that dream role before her life was taken from her. Christy Mirak woke up the morning of December 21st, 1992, and began getting ready to head to her job as a children's school teacher. Her morning routine pretty much consisted of the same things. She would wake up a little bit early, make some coffee, pop on the TV to check the news. Remember, 92, no smartphones. <laughs> And she would sit with her coffee for a little bit, finally get ready for work, and then head to work. But little did Christy know, she wouldn't even make it to school that morning. I know, it's weird. Just ask him. Okay, so let's get back into this dream role of Christy's. She applied to a few jobs after graduating from Millersville University, and she landed what she would call her dream role in 1990, and she was a reading teacher. This was a very simple assignment. This really wasn't obviously her dream role, but it put her foot in the door and she understood the places this could take her. And it did take her to some pretty amazing places. She got to take over a first grade class that year when another teacher had to go on a sudden sabbatical. 
she really saw this as her chance to win everybody over and show them what she could do. And she did. The school was super impressed. They noticed how well she was thriving. And within the same next year, she was promoted to a sixth grade teacher, which means she had her own class and a science teacher as well at Rowerstown Elementary School in Lancaster. Now, coming from Shemokin, <laughs> Lancaster probably felt like a city. <laughs> Shemokin, again, the town where her elementary school was that she worked had a population of 60,000, but the whole county was 500,000. Like, that's so much. That's so big. God, getting a job in your field right after college and then getting promoted. Oof, boy. Um, the dream. <laughs> but she was really naturally independent, really close with her family, but she didn't bother to call home much about personal things. She didn't want to worry her mother more than her mother already worried, as mothers do. And she seemed like she was honestly really intentional about moderation and super intelligent. She wasn't out getting drunk until she passed out every night, but she also wasn't a stick in the mud. I mean, this was before the days of social media, so Christy wanted to meet somebody. She wanted to live her life. She liked to go out and have fun, but, you know, not every single night, which I really respect. At the time in December 1992, which is when our crime takes place, Christy was renting a room in a three-bedroom house with her friend and roommate named Mary Lesko. She was 25 and technically single. Because she was pretty private, they know she didn't have a boyfriend, but I remember my mom talking about going on dates in, like, the 90s, probably would have been right around this time, and you did have to go out. Like, you couldn't just, uh, stay at home. So I'm sure she was seeing some people, but Lancaster County at the time probably felt a lot like city meets country. Busy enough to have some nightlife, plenty of younger crowds, but safe enough to have families around. Christy picked this area when she graduated from Millersville and and began work because of the proximity to the cities, but that little bit safer midtown feel. And she had a routine that she stuck to during the work week that had her up at around 6.30 or 7 a.m. every day. She'd grab a coffee, click on the morning news, and then for a bit, she would just honestly unwind, wake up, and then get ready. And Christy's friends would always roast her <laughs> for taking too long to get ready. And school was no exception. She would typically leave for her teaching job around 7.45 each morning to make it to the school by 8 a.m. And teaching wasn't just a job for Christy. I'm sure I nailed this home <laughs> a couple of times, but she really, really loved her students. It was her passion. It was evident to pretty much everybody she came in contact with that this was something she was meant to do. And the Christmas time was no exception. The evening of December 20th, 1992, Christy was spending her time wrapping up gifts for her students. She had gotten a book for each student and wrote a personalized little holiday Christmas message in each one and finished wrapping the decoration with a peppermint candy cane and a bow. <sighs> Goddamn, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. That evening, her roommate Mary Lesko and her spent the night hanging out while she was wrapping presents for her students. She went to sleep and woke up the next morning... Per usual, 6.30, turned the coffee pot on, flicked on the TV to start the morning news, and then she said goodbye to her roommate. Her roommate usually left before her, so her roommate would leave for work at around 7.30, Christy leaving around 7.45. However, Christy did not know that she was never going to make it to that school. The morning of December 21st, 1992 was a Monday, and that Monday rolled on pretty usual for everybody else in Christy's life. But when they realized Christy failed to show up for work at the school, they realized something was hinky. Big time. 
She was responsible, unreliable, and this was really weird for her to not show up or call. And it being a very small town, they called her mother, who was an emergency contact for her, and after her mother hadn't seen her either, the principal decided that he was just going to take it upon himself and drive over to check up on her. Now, I know this probably seems weird now. This principal was named Harry Goodman, and I think he had all the best intentions. He was really worried something bad had happened. Being as concerned as he was, when he arrived at Christie's house and realized the door was ajar, he let himself in, but also remained cautious. Taking a few steps into the home, it became evident that something grisly and awful had taken place. He immediately ran to a neighboring apartment complex and phoned the police at 9.22 in the morning. Principal Goodman had found Christie's body, laid flat, splayed out, her face beaten beyond recognition, strangled to death with what looked like her own sweater and blood everywhere, and it had just happened. He ran to the neighboring apartment complex, called 911, and just waited. As the police were doing their investigation, they noticed the front door was locked when it was shut, but there were no signs of breaking and entering. The door even had a peephole, which allowed Christy to see who was standing outside. Investigators really think that either Christy knew her attacker or she was surprised when she was leaving for work. But here's my thing, and I actually really agree with this. I heard this on True Crime Garage. Nick and the captain were talking about how a lot of the times on older doors that have like the turnkey, like knob locks, not the, Lord help me, long flat L-shaped hingy locks on doors. The doorknob with like the small little lock in the middle and the deadbolt sometimes like you would lock it before you left the house so that as you left the door would auto lock and what they and I think happened to be honest is I think Christy set that auto lock was ambushed never got a chance to lock the door and the killer left in a hurry and then when Principal Goodman came in he shut the door behind him because he was running because he just saw a fucking bloody murdered dead body of his colleague. Inside her townhouse, there was clearly a struggle. The Christmas gift and bags that she had prepared for the kids were scattered all over the floor, tossed around, looked like a goddamn tornado had hit their house. In addition to being beaten in the head with a blunt object and receiving a lot of blunt force trauma, Christy was raped, sexually assaulted, and strangled with her own sweater. Which seems not only like a crime of opportunity, but really odd to me. I don't know. Christy took such a brutal beating that her face was unrecognizable. When the police interviewed Principal Goodman, all he could say over and over again was her face, her face. She took such a brutal beating that it was unrecognizable and the police, I still have not found any records, won't disclose the extent of her injuries, but safe to say due to the closed casket at her funeral, it was probably pretty brutal. In all the melee and things tossed around their townhouse, being Mary and Christie's, the police also found a bloody cutting board on the ground. And it has been surmised that Christie probably used that to defend herself, only having it used against her, resulting in so many facial injuries, which is horrifying. Ooh. As the investigation dragged on, the police got kind of trickle and trickle of information. Yes, the town she was teaching at was small, 60,000 people-ish, but the county was 500,000 people. And Christy, as we said earlier, was wildly private. 
she really wasn't telling everybody what she was doing. And that huge gap in her personal life really hindered the investigation because everybody close to her had no idea. They didn't think she was seeing anybody. They didn't know anybody that had been bothering her or stalking her. And even if there was, to be honest, Christy probably didn't think it was a big enough deal to tell her family and friends she really kept things close to the chest, which also reminds me a lot of my mother. I don't know if it was of the generation, but they're both like that. In terms of the extent of her injuries, we know that Christy suffered blunt force trauma to her neck, back, jaw, upper chest. Her jaw was even fractured. Again, they think due to the cutting board. Christy fought like hell. And DNA was recovered. Semen was recovered from multiple areas on her body, as well as a section of carpet underneath, directly where she was found. So you'd think this case would get solved relatively easily, but eh, not so much. Dozens of people were interviewed, polygraphed, and they even interviewed the principal, Harry Goodman, which unfortunately, you know, sucks, but it makes sense. He was the person who drove them to find the body, and sometimes killers do that. However, he was obviously quickly eliminated as not a suspect. Since law enforcement had this DNA, they could do tests, and they interviewed over 1,500 people. 1,500, that is so many. But DNA doesn't go on forever, guys. There's a finite amount of it. And because of that, they really couldn't afford to test every single John that they thought of. But they did catch on to a subject that they thought was very promising. It was a man that Christy had dated 20 years her senior. But they had broken up. It seemed like just a fun fling. And they tested his DNA. And uh, he wasn't the killer because he's not a murderer. As for eyewitnesses and other people who witnessed things in the car. Again, this was broad fucking daylight. This is literally 7 a.m. There really wasn't anything for investigators to go on. However, there was a lot of witnesses saying that they did see like a medium-sized sedan-looking car. We'll later find out that that was actually a Toyota Celica. But they saw the man get out of the car and walk like near the apartment as if he was, you know, walking around the block or something. But they really couldn't get a good description of him. It was super far away. And eyewitnesses are not admissible in court and really only help hint the police at a possible suspect for a sketch or something. Obviously, the man didn't come forward to identify himself, and investigators, quote-unquote, proceeded on the assumption that this car and this man were involved in Ms. Mirak's murder. Wow. Take a shot for every M word I just said. On New Year's Day 93, which is, oh boy, quick turnaround, I think like 10 days, the police said that they were specifically looking for a muscular white man who was driving a white car. Uh, They thought it was a Dodge Shadow Convertible or a Dodge Daytona or a Toyota, kind of things like that. And honestly, I usually shit all over investigators when I listen to other podcasts and hear, like, the investigation work that they did. But it seems like these people actually narrowed it down as best they could. Around the time, in May 93 exactly, they released a sketch of a man that a neighbor of Christie's has said they saw walking down the road that morning. Um, it matched the description. It was a man in his late 20s, you know, medium brown hair. He looked like a basic bitch. (laughs) He was, you know, faded shirt and jeans. You know, unfortunately, it wasn't a super intense description, a super descriptive description, (laughs) but they went with it. They got a couple of hits, but nothing really promising. In July of that year, so just a couple of months later, 
they updated their description as well. And now they're kind of narrowing down the car a little bit. So we're getting breadcrumbs of information trying to make a whole goddamn piece of fucking bread here. And we only have breadcrumbs. <laughs> Unfortunately, the police would only come to find out, as we now know, that this case would not be solved for 25 and a half years, which is crazy to me. Law enforcement was under the impression that Christy knew her killer, and that can really sway investigations sometimes, just because you narrow down your suspect pool based on people in her inner circle. And if that wasn't the case, they might have missed him. And they did test 60 men based on the semen and blood samples they had from the crime, but none of them matched. Nothing fucking happened for years. And the next time they got a hit for Christie's killer was not even a hit. The next time they heard even a fuck pipsqueak fart about this murder was in 2003. The Lancaster Sunday News got a call from a man saying he, quote unquote, had a story idea. The man said that he was having a conversation with some buddies and these buddies started talking about Chandra Levy. And this is important because Chandra Levy's remains had been found in Washington Park just that May. And the buddy here suggested they do a story on a quote-unquote woman like her who were promiscuous and lived a double life that nobody knew about. Then this buddy started talking about the Christy Murak murder and noted the 10-year anniversary was coming up. Uh, fucking highly suspect, my guy. The caller told the reporter that he knew Christy's brother, Vince Murak, and knew of a barn on the Murak property where quote-unquote Christy would take men. Now, I have a lot of things to unpack with this. Number one, stop slut-shaming a dead woman. Number two, there's no such thing as a slut. Literally, men can have sex with exactly as many people as women can. Numbers do not define anything. Uh, virginity is a construct created by the Catholic Church. And fuck that guy. Promiscuous second life? No, she was a private person. She didn't want you to know anything about her life. That does not mean it was promiscuous in any way. That's fucking stupid. Goodbye. Anyway, <laughs> obviously the reporter found this interesting and they contacted the FBI. The FBI believed the call was likely from Christy Murak's killer, but it was clearly too late to trace the call. And there wasn't much to go on. There really wasn't any background noise, identifying factors. The person who called spoke in a super low voice. And it all seemed honestly just super weird. Oh, and for the record, Vince Mirak said that there was no barn on his property. Speaking of Vince Mirak, her brother, he has done incredible work keeping Christie's name in the news and not letting this cold case die. It is so important. There are so many cold cases that go unsolved, and I think now is the perfect time to be interested in true crime, because right now we are solving some of these. A lot of murders are getting solved the way that this one did. So spoilers, I'm sorry. So if you do follow true crime, you will be a little bit familiar with something called genetic testing and DNA testing, and a lot of these independent companies can do that, and they can do that on open source, and it is only voluntary. So essentially what you do is you get your DNA done by things like 23andMe or Ancestry or what the fuck ever. After you get your genetic DNA profile, you can choose to upload it to these GEDmatch resources, and I actually did my own. So what that helps to do, it's not necessarily uploading your DNA. They're not going to get like a hit for like a petty theft you did in the 90s. But what it helps do is these places, specifically Parabon Nanolabs, 
helps get all this DNA. And if you get a familial hit on the DNA, they build trees. They build family trees. So if your cousin commits a crime 20 years ago and you upload your DNA and they find a familial chain or however the fuck that works, then they build a tree and they can literally find the source. That's a briefer on Parabon Nanolabs and the work that they're doing. So the police honestly could not figure this case out. And it was among one of the most sad, frustrating, disgusting things that have ever happened. And in 2017, the investigators assigned to Christy Mirak's cold case contacted Parabon Nanolabs and they used DNA from the semen samples recovered from the carpet in the Christy Mirak crime scene. And the company was able to create images of what Christie's killer might have looked like at 25, 45, and 55. That's fucking crazy. The images which Parabon and the investigators were like big generalization, broad brushstrokes. They still release them to the public in the hopes that someone might recognize something in the faces. And this technology is very, very new. It has recently been able to not only exonerate some people from wrongful convictions, but put serial killers like the Golden State Killer away and put murderers like April Tinsley's murderer away. And this Parabon genetic lab testing is so cool. I love it. Holla. Christie's killer left seminal fluid behind. Gross. It means semen. And it didn't really match anything in the database directly, the interesting thing about this case is the investigators and the police did such a good job and their profile on this guy could not have been so left field. The killer, the investigators, told everybody, was not the type of guy to stand out in a crowd, he didn't want attention, and he was happy to stay in the shadows. As we're about to find out 20-something years later, that is absolutely not the case. When Christy Mirak's killer's DNA got compared to the information uploaded by Jedmatch, it actually pointed directly to a half-brother of a man who had literally never been on their radar, not even a fucking blip. But they still had to compare the DNA that they had collected to the murder scene DNA. And they did not have that guy's DNA because they were not even thinking of him. And to legally collect DNA, I mean, you can't, like, run up to the guy and be like, hi, hello, uh, we're suspecting you of murder. Would you like to spit in a cup or, like, um, have a Q-tip in your mouth? So they have to go about it very secretively, and they actually did this exact same thing in the Golden State case. But the police staked out um, a school function where the suspect was working at. We'll get into that in a hot second. And when they threw things away in the trash, the cops just went and fucking snagged it. And then they tested that DNA against the DNA found at the crime scene. And bing, bang, boom, bitches, it came up with a hit. And not just a hit, like a bullseye hit. It was approximately 1 in 200 octillion. Literally. There's no other way it, it could have been anybody else but this baby dick motherfucker. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll reveal our killer. And we're back, because breaks don't matter yet. The cops have the killer's DNA that they stole from the trash can. They have the original semen sample from the crime scene in 1992, and they have a motherfucking match. The killer's name was Raymond Rowe, a.k.a. DJ Freeze. F-R-E-E-Z. Z. I'm sorry. Didn't the police just say this man was shy and reserved and didn't like attention? Okay. 
maybe 25 years ago, he didn't like attention. But now he certainly fucking does. And this guy looks like every person trying to cosplay as someone from Jersey Shore. (laughs) He looks like he's going as a Jersey Shore character for Halloween in his mugshot. On Monday, June 25th, 2018, that's only two years ago, the Lancaster DA announced that they had arrested Raymond Rowe in the murder of Christy Mirak. Ha ha ha, cheers from a thousand suns. A lot of people were thrilled to hear the news, but really shocked to know that it was one of their well-known local DJs. Raymond Rowe DJed everything from proms to weddings to the school, I mean, with kids. According to Raymond's now obviously shot down website, he has DJed for Paris Hilton, Brooke Hogan, Sting, and the Eagles. He may not have been the center of attention 25 years ago, but now he certainly basks in the spotlight. It is tragic and very cringy, to be completely honest. At the time of his arrest, he was 48 years old. Raymond Rowe was born in 1968, so he was only one year older than Christy at the time of her murder. He apparently grew up becoming a break dancer and a house party DJ and did not graduate high school, but he did get married three times. The thing that's extra spicy about this particular piece of shit is that in August of 1992, like four months before he brutally murdered, raped, sexually assaulted, and killed Christy Mirak, he hosted an anti-violence rally in Lancaster. What? He trampled the chili, apparently, in 96, married again, divorced, then married again in 2000, um, and then got divorced again. All of these marriages were literally two years of marriage. (laughs) As far as his criminal record, there was only one thing on file. In 2001, police raided the Chameleon Club where he worked in search of underage drinkers, and he was charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, which just means he was probably being an asshole because he was not an underage drinker (laughs) uh, during the raid. And in 2003, he tried to file a lawsuit against Lancaster County, like, against compensatory damages. This suit was dismissed in 04. He wanted $150,000. Like, what the fuck? Oh my god. Also turns out I was wrong. Sorry. He has a fourth wife. The most fucked up thing is, for me personally, Raymond Rowe during his interrogation, trial, conviction, jail time, he never ever said why. We don't know if he killed anybody in the time between Christy and now. It's it's been 25 and a half years since his arrest in 2018. Did he sexually assault anybody else? Did he rape anybody else? I mean, this just seems like such a brutal crime for just a one-and-done situation. And while at trial, Vince Mirak finally got to give a statement. Quote-unquote, I searched for who could do such a horrific thing. Who could do something so heinous to another person and walk away with no regret? Now I know who. You took away our joy, our security, our love of the Christmas holiday, but most of all, you took away our Christy. We struggle every day to get past the pain. I can only hope the rest of your life is as painful for you as the last 26 years have been for my family. Unquote. Boof. Honestly, though, I would have just cursed at him. Kudos to this guy for being classy. 
Christie's father also had planned to address Raymond Rowe, but he literally collapsed in tears and couldn't, and unfortunately, Christie's mother died without knowing whatever happened to her baby girl. She died of cancer a couple of years prior to them finding out the murderer. Also, as a fun side note, they actually found a parking ticket from a couple years after on Raymond's record, and turns out that's how they found out he drove a white Celica, which was if you look at a picture, I'll post it next to the original car they were looking for. It's pretty fucking close. They could be twins. So, I mean, the witnesses this time were actually right. <laughs> this case leaves so many unanswered questions. Raymond Rowe clearly never showed remorse. And he is spending the rest of his life behind bars, but he never gave anybody any answers. Not how him and Christy knew each other, not what he was trying to do there originally at 7 a.m., not if it was premeditated. He didn't say a word. He just gave a half-hearted apology, and that's it. Speculation is that Raymond probably saw her at the Chameleon Club because she did go out. She was social. And he noticed her, followed her home, intending to assault her. It's possible they met, but we have no idea. No one even knows if Christy answered the door for her or if she was just fucking ambushed when she was leaving for work. I mean, even the simplest of things we still have absolutely no idea about. And he's been silent ever since. The evidence collected at the scene clearly points a connection between the killer and his victim, Police found a Chameleon Club pass in Christie's pocket the day she was murdered, so she had obviously gone there before. Maybe they had met, maybe they had chatted, maybe they didn't. Maybe he was just a fucking creepy stalker dude leering at her across the dance floor. We don't know. Someday, if Raymond ever sprouts a conscious, we might find out how well he and Christie knew each other, if they even knew each other at all. So, thank you for listening. This has been Crime Chat. Be safe, be vigilant, don't let the bastards get you down. Bye. Um, but not actually bye, because I'm going to do sources real quick. I just wanted to do them after, because who wants to listen to sources? Um, I got a lot of my information, again, from newspapers.com. They take $20 a month for me, and I use them a lot. <laughs> I also used uh, medium.com. It was a fantastic article written um, by the True Crime Times. She's great. Follow her. I also used cinemaholic.com, um, a little Dateline article, where is Raymond DJ Freeze now? And I also used the podcasts True Crime Garage and Criminalia to get a feel. Thank you guys so much. Have a good life.